Hi, and welcome to episode 26 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Matthew Rowe with us. Dr. Rowe is a major in the Army National Guard. He belongs to the American Dental Association, South Carolina Dental Association, the Greater Columbia Dental Association, and is a diplomat of the American Board of Periodontology. He is a member of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine and regularly attends meetings with the South Carolina Breastfeeding Coalition. Dr. Rowe has completed his TOT certification. He completed a residency at Tufts University for Pediatric Sleep Medicine. He is certified by the American Laser Dental Association. He is a national lecturer for the American Laser Study Club, completed continuing education to become a Breathe Ambassador from the Breathe Institute, and a board member for the International Consortium of Ankylofrenula Professionals. Dr. Rowe has treated over 500 patients of all ages for lip and tongue tie, as well as his own three sons, which were all tied. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm honored that you'll have me here. So thank you so much for allowing me to share my passion. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And I know we have a lot of fun topics to discuss today. So let's jump right in. Um, first, sure. share with us yeah, share with us how you started treating tongue ties. Uh, really had no expectation whatsoever of treating tethered tissues. Uh, I went to dental school thinking that I'd be a general dentist and then got into the specialty of periodontics and that's where we treat patients that have gum disease and do implants and bone grafts and extractions and um, I went through a pediatric uh, rotation in dental school and it was just a thing to go through. I didn't really at the time find an interest in treating children Um, and quite frankly treating uh, patients with periodontal disease. I typically see patients who are in an older population uh, at least adult population mostly. And uh, my wife and I, uh, we had our firstborn, and uh, we were at a baby wearing meeting in a park, and she was friends uh, somehow with a, a local lactation consultant, and, and the lactation consultant came up to me in the park and asked if I do phrenectomies. She said, you're a periodontist, you do phrenectomies, right? And I told her, well, I do, and I was trained with scissors and a scalpel, and she said, well, can you do it with a laser? And so I said, well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> and uh, I thought she was just kind of, you know, small talking with me. And, and she was very persistent. I mean, I could not get away from her. She's and uh, so I started to call all the different uh, CEOs of the different laser companies in the U.S. And most of them were kind of car salesmen, for lack of a better term. They didn't really know how their laser worked. They just kind of knew what it was, how much it cost warranties, all that stuff. And so I finally found uh, one uh, owner, and, and he's actually a laser physicist, and he, he was able to spend several hours on the phone with me on different occasions to explain how not only his laser works, but how all the other lasers work. And so I went out and, 
and actually visited their uh, factory and, and met the people that make the laser, and it's a CO2 laser. And um, I tried to find the laser uh, for the purpose of the surgery that I would be doing versus trying to uh, conform the surgeries to any laser. And not all lasers are the same. So um, I ended up with a CO2 laser, and then um, I went through different certification courses through the Academy of Laser Dentistry and um, American Laser Study Club and, and various others throughout the country. And um, just got to the point where I, I had the training and the confidence to do the procedure with the laser, and it was very rewarding. So I went from really not having any knowledge about uh, tongue ties and how they can affect breastfeeding to now uh, lecturing on it uh, nationally. So it's just a very, very big step there. And it's, it's one of the things in my practice that I'm uh, most passionate about. And uh, I, I guess so because I later found out through the training that I had and knowing what to look for that each of our own three boys were tongue-tied and lip-tied. Wow. And um, so it was it was a blessing, I guess, in, in that sense. And it was kind of strange. It wasn't the sense that they were, uh, you know, tied and then I find out that they're tied and then I got involved with this. I was strangely involved in it before all that happened. So mm-hmm. typically yeah. don't see that. Yeah, well, and that's actually what happened with my daughter, too. I was becoming an orofacial myologist before I then learned that she was tied because everyone told me she wasn't when she was an infant and we had nursing issues. But that's a, that's already yeah. on the podcast. They can go back and listen to that. Yeah. And um, we had that, too. I mean, we had lactation consultants that, uh, you know, my wife was having very classic signs and symptoms. And, and Eli, our firstborn, was, was the same very classic symptoms. And lactation consultant that we saw uh, who's, even nationally known and an author on uh, breastfeeding said, no, no tie. And so, okay, well, pediatrician said there was no issue. He was gaining weight. He could stick his tongue out, you know, the classics, they could stick their tongue out, gain weight. My wife had good letdown and supply. And so he was basically being force fed, but all those symptoms were there. So interesting. And so now you have an infant clinic set up in your office. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. On, on Wednesdays, I see uh, babies that are infancy to one year old that are still breast or bottle feeding. They haven't transitioned yet into solids. On uh, Tuesdays, we call that toddler Tuesday. So I, I treat all toddlers and then the rest of the week kind of mixed in with my regular periodontal patients and surgeries are adult patients. So on our infant clinic day, I have two lactation consultants with me. Uh, one of which is trained in upledger craniosacral therapy. And so she does body work uh, before the procedure. And, um, you know, both of the lactation consultants are there to do observed feedings and do functional evaluation prior to uh, doing any sort of release. So usually what the way I talk to families is I tell them that we, we want to marry the symptoms that they've marked on their intake form with what we see anatomically and what we see functionally or the lack thereof. And then once we see that all of those pieces of the puzzle are coming together, then they can make a much more uh, comfortable informed decision on actually moving forward with the procedure. That's amazing. I think that 
other, I think people will be interested to learn more about how you kind of set that up or you're into, you have a very integrative model of collaborative care. It sounds like um, with lactation and one of them, one of the lactation consultants being trained in cranial sacral, you said the upledger uh, method. Um, I think you also, I think that Charlotte also mentioned to me that you guys will soon be integrating a um, certified orofacial myologist and possibly another lactation consultant as well. Is that on the horizon? That's right. Both of them have uh, partnered up within their own business. And um, this uh, speech pathologist uh, that's going to be integrating into our practice, she was actually uh, a, a patient of ours uh, in the sense that uh, we treated her child. And that kind of opened the door from from doing more articulation therapy in, in a school setting and, and private speech setting to wanting to have her own business model and and become interested in uh, oral facial myology. So it was a a real blessing in the way that this is all kind of blossomed because now we can truly, I feel like, have that comprehensive model where we have, you know, a release provider, we have a myofunctional therapist, we have lactation, we have body work. And um, that, you know, that's really the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's definitely something for people to take pause and <laughs> go back, rewind, listen to that again. <laughs> um, it, that's yeah. amazing to have all of those components and you're offering them in your office and you're working collaboratively together, whether it's just for, you know, one morning a week or one afternoon. It's, I think it sends a message to, um, to both providers who maybe are still learning in this space, but also to families how important that you know, integrative care really is because we all tell our, our families, you know, if we're in this space, we tell people you need that. And that's how we're going to get you the best functional results. And, you know, it's, it's one piece of the pie to do one thing, but if we're not doing the others, we're not going to get the best outcome. And really we want the best outcome. So, um, you know, I think that's phenomenal that you've set up your, your infant clinic and you mentioned the toddler day and um, that you just they have these, these resources available to your family. So kudos to you. <laughs> It's amazing. It's, uh, Charlotte, um, who is my tongue tie coordinator, she is uh, phenomenal. She really uh, does a lot of the um, hand holding with families even before they come into the office answering their questions. We uh, collaborate quite a bit with other speech therapy offices and lactation consultants kind of throughout the southeast uh, region, and she does all of that uh, networking. And we've We've taken trips that we're in, we're in Columbia, South Carolina. We take trips to Charleston or or into uh, Atlanta and Charlotte to uh, talk to different lactation consultant groups or speech therapy groups, and really just you know I'll, I'll take a lecture with me and and we'll really go through from start to finish how our model works and show them pictures of different uh, classifications of ties so they kind of know. You know, we're not just looking for that classic guitar string from floor of the mouth to tip of the tongue. Yes. There's a lot of variation, and they have to know those very classic signs and symptoms because we have so many times where these uh, these families will see a pediatrician and they say, well, you know, they don't really see anything, so then they, nothing's treated. Or on the contrary, they don't see anything, but they say, well, we'll, tr- we'll clip it anyway. You know, but there's no aftercare, there's no follow-up. And in our model, the lactation consultants are in the office to work with that mom. If they if they want to breastfeed, then they're there to support that breastfeeding mom and, and make sure that the latch is comfortable and, and appropriate, the hold is appropriate. And um, 
you know, if they want a bottle feed, then we are, are likewise just as supportive and we want them to be the best bottle feeders as possible. There's no, there's no shaming of parents, whether or not they want to breastfeed or bottle feed. It's we're, we're there to support them so they can have a healthy child. Yeah, no, and I, and I also love that you brought up that whole, you know, sometimes the doctor or the ENT will say, I don't see, <laughs> I don't see anything, but I'll clip it anyways. And, and for me, that's always very concerning. And I try to educate my, my patients on that because, well, if they don't see anything, and this could go for anything anywhere in the medical world, this is not just related to tongue tie, because I've also had the, this come up with, you know, tonsil, you know, enlarged tonsils. Well, they look kind of enlarged, but not large enough to remove. But if you want me to remove them anyways, I'll, I'll just go ahead and do it. And anytime any provider provides that kind of a disposition toward a parent concern um, or another provider's concern, that just, it's very, an, it's an uneasy feeling for me. <laughs> and I go, I don't think we should go with this provider. Um, but, you know, there, there is that major concern when it comes to tongue tie, where if an ENT or anybody, a dentist, anybody says, oh, I don't see it, but I'll release it anyways. Well, if you don't see it, then why are you touching it is my first question. And the second question then being, how do we know we released it, you know, for full functional gain? How do we know that we released it enough? How do we know that we went deep enough or that this provider is really is educated on how to do that release for this particular case if they're not seeing it? So I think that almost bridges a line of, you know, we say do no harm. Well, I start to wonder, you know, what harm are we doing when we just release a child, even though we think they shouldn't be released um, as a provider? So, you know, that's, I, I like that you bring that point up. And I think there, um, there's a lot of discussion surrounding that topic. And so I'm always trying to educate, which is the whole idea behind this podcast. So um, any other thoughts on your end on that, on that topic in terms of, well, you know, one of the, one of the tenets of surgery is, is you have to have a visible surgical field. And if you, if you cannot visualize what you're trying to treat, how are you going to ensure that you have a successful treatment? Yeah. And also if they don't know the symptoms that they're, that they're looking for, and they really haven't even questioned on what are the symptoms, but they're just going off of weight gain and, and tongue protrusion you know, that's not enough to, to say one thing or the other. We have to look at all the symptoms. And, you know, with these posterior submucosal tongue ties that we talk about, you know, that there's, there's a mystique around those because without proper uh, examination and elevation of the tongue, you a lot of times might not be able to isolate the fascia. Mm -hmm. And uh, unless we do that, we're not going to be able to get a full release. So we have to train our colleagues to know how to look and what to look for with these symptoms. And just like you said, you know, let's say, let's say there's sore throats that are happening, but you can't see the tonsils. They're not enlarged. Are we going to take out tonsils anyway, or there's no obstruction of the airway? And we don't just go in and take out tonsils, but on the circumcision end of things too, you know, how many circumcisions are happening on babies and what is the rationale behind that? You know, I, I agree when, when, uh, Richard Baxter was on your podcast. He he eloquently stated about something like that, where we're doing a lot of these procedures for for a lack of reason, just because it's a, a a trend to do or it's a familial thing that's happened. Why are we doing that? We at least know genetically that there's links between um, family members and ankyloglossia and airway issues and craniofacial growth and development issues. Yeah, it's, it's a definitely a hot topic. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, I think we just all need to step into 
really being comfortable with, you know, if we don't see something referring to another provider or saying to the family, well, I'm not seeing this, but that doesn't mean it's not there. I would love for you to go and speak with so-and-so and, you know, and I, but I also love how you mentioned that there's just, there are many pieces to this puzzle. And um, if you're not treating that surrounding fascia, then you may not get the best release. And so I think there's also something to be said about providers becoming more educated and doing their own due diligence and learning what that looks like and what that means. There was um, just a discussion in a group on Facebook yesterday where somebody truly just wanted to gain more education and they were asking for, you know, people to post pictures of tongue ties and then, you know, a normal frenulum and what does that look like? (laughs) I was like, this is a dangerous conversation to have in a Facebook thread because it's not about what it looks like. It's about function and how function is impacted. And you can't tell from one picture. It could, based on how the tongue moves left, right, up, down, suctions or doesn't, you know, the tongue can look very different and that's the same tongue. So, you know, I think that people can share their stories and share pictures. And if you're someone who's educating and you're able to speak to the cases and the symptoms and the function behind those photos, that's a different story. But I don't think we can, you know, I was, I was like, I have to stay off this post before I lose it. <laughs> um, I was like, I don't well, think we can't post pictures and just assume that that's a tongue tie. That's not a tongue tie. And that's another, another big issue out there. One of my biggest pet peeves is, um, you know, where we have uh, colleagues that'll say it's a minor tongue tie or a moderate or severe tongue tie. I mean, it's either a tongue tie or it's not a tongue tie function is either affected or it's not. And, um, I, a lot of times when, Parents will tell me that they've been to another colleague or and I'm a second opinion for them when they mention that I'll I'll move my tongue and make a skinny tongue, I'll make a fat tongue, and then I'll do tongue to palate suction, tabletop or cave or however you call it. And um, you know, it really isolates the frenum when you suction your tongue up to the palate. And so, you know, they see that a frenum can look a lot different depending on how you move your tongue. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that I do to try to educate is that uh, I've put together basically a, a cheat sheet of mom symptoms, baby symptoms, and problems associated with tongue and lip ties. And I put it on a card that has some, some pictures of a tongue and lip tie and um, just my office contact information. And it's a great way to distribute to lactation consultants and uh, speech therapists or pediatricians. And that way they can have it in their office. And when they do have families that come in, families can see it and they can say, wow, um, you know, I've had these symptoms before. Or they've had it on an older child and they're like, wow, you know, I had all these problems and I never realized that this was an issue. I thought it was just normal to have these problems. Well, yeah. you know, just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal. Yes. Um, thank you. So. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I say that all the time. Like just because yeah. it's typical, it seems typical or it seems common, that doesn't mean, mean it's actually typical or normal. Um, yeah. It's our mantra. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, so what pitfalls are seen then at different ages, you know, with different children, you know, or I guess infants versus toddlers and other ages that you treat? Um, who are tongue-tied, and, and how do you determine when you treat? Is it, you know, based on your set criteria, your symptoms, or are there other determining factors? It's a very complex question, a lot of moving, <laughs> a lot of moving pieces to that. We could talk the whole rest of the time on that, but, no. <laughs> um, you know, in infancy, uh, we, we look at, okay, well, were they, 
were they a, a preemie? You know, were there any uh, uh, neurological issues that could be affecting the ability to latch? Are there any airway issues also that could affect the ability to latch uh, and, and affect that suck, swallow, breathe uh, complex? Um, you know, we look at uh, from a chiropractic standpoint even, uh, how, how, how were they born? Were they C-section? Were they vaginal birth? Did they have time to work their way slowly out of the birth canal where things are a little bit straighter versus if they came right out as a C-section baby? And is torticollis, you know, that, that in the chiropractic world, that was a word I was never aware of before getting into treating tongue ties. Uh, you, you could tell me tortellini or torticollis and I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> They're both pastas to me. But um, once I start to learn about this and talk to parents and I start looking at babies too, and I look like I look at the baby and the baby looks like a C shape and only turns its head to one side, that you know, that's not normal. And parents aren't always aware of that. Or, you know, why does your baby always lay on one side when they're in the crib? Um, and I tell parents, you know, that can definitely affect the baby's ability to latch too. And so when we talk about when is it the right time to treat, you know, if they have these uh, issues of torticollis or whatever, we want to work that out through doing body work and see if that in and of itself with lactation support in, in a proper latch, can that abate the, the common breastfeeding symptoms that can mimic a, a tongue tie? And there's been many times where families have come to me where maybe uh, there's no obvious anatomical uh, restriction, a guitar string from the floor of the mouth, the tip of the tongue, and we have these symptoms, but, you know, we had, we had a difficult birth or we uh, have torticollis um, and where mom is a first time mom and just hasn't had experience with a lactation consultant to, to be able to know how to hold their baby while nursing. So that's again, the importance of having the, the body worker and lactation support in office because we've, We've avoided surgery on multiple occasions with mm -hmm. that. And we, we get through the breastfeeding issues, and um, e even with that, um, age can play a big role in things. So once we get into that three to four months range where we get into a, a, a range of growth spurt for the baby, mom's hormones are shifting, milk supply is shifting. You know, if things are kind of questionable of doing a release uh, early on, before that three or four month time, there'll be times where we'll say, okay, let's get lactation support, let's get body work, and let's wait until month three or four. And if we hit a brick wall with the breastfeeding relationship at that time, so as long as mom's not having pain up to that time, uh, then then we would make a decision uh, because then we truly see that there's that there's a failure of a mechanism to, to withdraw milk from the breast or bottle. So, um, that's that's one decision making factor um, where we've a lot of times uh, been able to avoid surgery. Things kind of work their way out, and and there was no issue as long as there's no failure to thrive issue right off the bat. We can do that. Um, when we get into that range of of teething, also that's a difficult time, especially when uh, we're looking at the symptoms and that for moms and the parents will come in and the baby's six months old or so. And uh, teething a lot of times can start earlier, but um, you know, if there's six months in teething, 
then mom's having a lot of discomfort also and and the breastfeeding relationship can be difficult because baby can be so easily distracted or or fussy also from the teething. So a lot of complexity in that age range. And then as we get into transitioning into solids, that's where it's so helpful to have that SLP as a teammate because then we can start doing Beckman oral motor therapy, or as we get closer to around age four, we can start incorporating myofunctional therapy into that treatment plan. And we do that before doing any surgery. And I always liken doing the phrenectomy procedure as kind of a marathon. You know, you don't just, this is a, the tongue is a complex muscle made up of multiple muscles. And so, you know, you go into a marathon, you don't just expect to do great on a marathon without training for it. You have to have endurance, you have to have strength, flexibility. That's all things that the tongue needs. And so if we can do that physical therapy ahead of time and get the tongue stronger, then that transition into the marathon, aka surgery, the phrenectomy, it's going to be a much smoother process. And then after the procedure, continuing on with that therapy is going to get us much more predictable results than if we did nothing at all and just did the surgery. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one thing, you know, and then that age range, of course, of two to six-year-olds, I would say, is a, is a tough age range to work with. I, I do oral sedation in my office and I do nitrous depending on, you know, if the family is amenable to that. I know we worry about... Um, the MTHFR gene mutation and nitrous and, and that, uh, but um, some families don't want that. So we do oral sedation. And um, even with oral sedation, sometimes that can be unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And doing the, doing the Beckman therapy or doing the myofunctional therapy with a child for multiple weeks, I usually say six to eight weeks of that therapy, at least once a week before doing a release. But really the the gold standard would be is when the child can do tongue to spot or maintain tongue to palate suction, it's going to make that procedure much easier. But we can't always get that in a two-year-old who's trying to do uh, or who's having issues with speech formation and articulation or feeding issues. They, They just mentally are not always there to be mature enough to do that. Then, of course, they've teeth at that time so they have weapons to defend themselves when we're trying to do these exercises and um, you know in a setting where you're not able to always do general anesthesia not not all of us have uh, hospital privileges but but even so with uh, you know trying to to do the procedure and and do sutures in a child you can really only do that if they're asleep so you know that's another complexity too is how is the aftercare going to be if you're a provider that doesn't do sutures on you know two or three year olds mm-hmm. so in that situation a lot of times i try to mimic what we do in our in our office with what they do at home so you know if we're going to be doing topical anesthetic or we're going to be doing local anesthetic for them i want to try to mimic that sensation to that child for that child and have them be kind of habituated to that so it's not something new to them and shocking. So I give the recommendation of the parents to use a Q-tip under the tongue or the lip and be able to kind of swab that there and touch under the lip or tongue for about 30 seconds. When the child is accustomed to that, then I have them use something like Aura Gel uh, on the Q-tip and do the same thing. 
and have them multiple times do that so they get used to that sensation of numbness because with kids, they feel that tingling, warming sensation, and that can be alarming to them if they've never felt it before. They feel like it's hot. Uh, but then I tell them if, you know, if we're going to have that sensation of heat anyway, then let's cool it down with some ice. So I have them put a frozen blueberry under their lip or the tongue for about 20 seconds or 30 seconds. And that kind of stinging sensation from the cold is then to mimic what we would do with local. Mm-hmm. And I always tell parents, you know, we don't talk about the pain word, the hurt word, the needle word, because it just psychs kids up. You know, I tell them, let's talk about um, using a magic wand under your tongue or lip. We're going to, you know, Mr. Matt, I'm not Dr. Rao, I'm Mr. Matt to kids. And, um, you know, Mr. Matt's going to draw a diamond under your lip or tongue, and then we're going to show it to everybody when we're all done. And that way it's kind of a built-in exercise, right? So when I see them then for the procedure and I do the topical, then I tell them, now we're going to cool it down with some ice. And, you know, if they've never had an injection before, they don't know what to expect other than that cold stinging sensation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then I've avoided telling them, here's a pinch, you know, and that's just another thing to kind of psych them up. That's kind of that age range. Then we get into the the teens, much easier to work with. Um, All the same, I have them do body work. Typically, we're getting more into uh, out of the craniosacral therapy and more into myofascial release or deep tissue massage, uh, traditional chiropractic care, and then uh, have them work with an orofacial myologist uh, to the point where we're seeing wider range of opening. We're seeing uh, consistency with tongue-to-palate suction and, and um, tongue-to-spot and being able to hold that. A lot of times I see that these adult patients have very chronic signs and symptoms also where it's just that they have chronic head, neck, and shoulder tension. They have um, chronic migraine headaches or stress headaches kind of at the base of the skull. Uh, They have TMD issues, uh, clenching and grinding, sleep disorder breathing, um, sometimes even constipation issues because the the tongue not getting up to the roof of the mouth and activating the vagus nerve and improving GI motility. So very classic uh, symptoms that way. And a lot of times these can be abated just through the myofunctional therapy and the body work alone, but then it's really that last piece where we do the release that allows those providers to really enrich their own therapies, uh, you know, hundredfold. So, um, and then of course, into the adult population, pretty much a continuation from the the teenagers. Uh, But it's so crucial to do that therapy before and after the release and not just be a, a provider that is available to just clip things and then just basically tell the patient good luck and, and not do any follow-up. And, yeah. and with regard to follow-ups, I initially had the mindset of doing post-ops at two weeks and then later at like six or eight weeks uh, because that's traditionally what I would do with my periodontal surgeries. But at that time, I was wanting fairly consistent and predictable healing to where we would be taking out stitches for a patient um, on those particular types of surgeries. But with phrenectomies and especially on babies, the mouth heals fast, babies heal fast, we heal while we're sleeping. And so it's so important to see them back at one week versus two weeks, because if we do see that there's any sort of fast healing or any sort of attachment that's happening, then we can get in and we can do a little bit of a, 
a sweep or a lift of the tongue or the lip and kind of break up those adhesions that are starting to form and um, kind of guide the healing process. And a lot of parents are appreciative of that because if, if they're doing those exercises at home, it's just one less time they have to do that on their child. It's so hard as a parent and speaking as a parent to have to do that. But, you know, the alternative is, is that we get reattachment. We have to go back in and that's just another trauma. That's just another risk for creating scar tissue. So, you know, I try to always, and this is another mantra that I say, but we're, we're doing this for your child, not to your child. Yes. And there's a whole, whole lifetime of benefit that can come out of a procedure that takes maybe 20 seconds. Yeah, so. no, I love that. I love that you say we're doing this for your child, not to your child, because I think that that definitely changes the mindset of the parent. And we do a lot of education, too, on, um, you know, the lifetime benefits of doing this now or when we feel, you know, Michelle Emanuel, who's an OT, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she was just on the podcast that love her. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so she talks a lot about optimal timing of release. And so that sounds a lot like what you're explaining and what my, my, you know, method is, um, I'm absolutely right there with you with that pre pre op and post op and what's required, you know, pre op and post op and not working with providers who are just going to release that tongue because they happen to be in the office today, but really collaborating and discussing, you know, what is, are they ready for it? What else do we need to do first? Maybe we can avoid the tongue tie release. Maybe we need to do some body work and see what happens in some myofunctional therapy and so on and so forth. And so I love hearing when other people come from that same mindset. Um, we're on the same page there. And I think that educating others, you know, how nicely this works. And, you know, obviously if we do the pre-op and we feel like the, the child or adult still needs to have a, um, a phrenectomy or a frenuloplasty, then, you know, great. Then that's, that's the next step. Um, but there's also post-op that follows. It's not just a one-off procedure. And so um, that's one of the big messages I think I've been really trying to get at, get out there through this podcast too, is that that pre-op and post-op is just, it's not, it's not meant to just take your money and to send you from one provider to the next. There is a reason behind, you know, why we have recommended what we're recommending, because this is what we see brings the most optimal results. And like Michelle says, you know, we figure out from doing these things, one, if you need that release and two, what the most optimal timing for that procedure is for you, because that's different from one, one person or one, you know, patient to the next. So um, you also, I believe do as far as your procedures go that you do, you do both Zoggy's functional frenuloplasty method as well as a CO2 laser phrenectomy method. Is that correct? Yeah. The, before I mentioned that, I just, while we were mm-hmm. talking about Michelle also, I just, not enough good things to say about her. She's just a phenomenal provider. And um, when I do talk to parents, I always record a video on the parent's cell phone and I show them the exercises in one of the parent's mouths, primarily whichever parent's going to be providing the majority of the aftercare so they feel what it feels like to do that in their own mouth. But part of that video, I talk about going on YouTube and I say, watch three videos. One is by Luna Lactation. They show a playful way of doing the aftercare exercises. The other is by Michelle Emanuel with her tummy time method. And I tell them tummy time is good for developing the core muscles and the cranial nerves. And I tell them, to watch her video called the sleeping tongue hold posture 
And that's a great way of getting the tongue to palate and getting a good stretch in without having to manually probe and touch under the tongue while a child is asleep. Yes. And so, you know, they, they watch those videos as well. And, you know, Michelle is so, is so in, in tuned with timing of these releases. And she'll even say, you know, uh, if the, if the baby has any sort of cranial nerve dysfunction, it's best to work those issues out before ever going right into a release also, because that can definitely affect even how the body accepts the release. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love her. I follow her <laughs> and everybody else should too. <laughs> She's wonderful. Yeah. Um, doing as a lot far of as, uh, as far as the, uh, you know, Dr. Zaghi's functional frenulplasty method and, and doing things with a CO2 laser, typically, um, you know, I'll, I'll use the CO2 more for our infant and adolescent patients. And as we get into our uh, young adults and um, and actual adults, I'll typically do it more as the functional frenulaplasty method where um, we are getting more into releasing some of the superficial fibers of the genioglossus muscle if, if indicated. And I will a lot of times actually suture the wound and approximate the size of the wound to guide the healing. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a lot uh, larger diamond-shaped wound when we are in an adult's mouth versus an infant. And so when you let tissue just heal by secondary intent, it closes on its own. We have a little bit more risk, I, I believe at least, of having granulation tissue, scar tissue formation. And um, if we can guide the healing process to where that that new freedom or where that new closure should be, I think that we try to avoid a lot better getting that type of scarring. So that I'll, I'll typically use that technique, and and it just depends too. And I'll switch up, but sometimes I'll use scissors when I do that. Sometimes I'll use my laser. I t- I'm doing it in both ways right now to really just kind of determine healing wise, you know how much morbidity is there or how much pain is there for a patient when we do it with laser versus scissors? I would have to say probably at least in my practice, the jury is still out on patient perceptions between the two. Mm. Um, but I would have to say from a perspective of, uh, of having a clean surgical field, I, I typically have a lot less bleeding uh, than I would if uh, with a laser than I would with scissors. So. Yeah, and that, that's what I hear too, and what I think we've educated families on as well. Um, so that's good to hear your feedback on that. Thank you. Um, yeah. I think one other thing we wanted to touch on today was, you know, sleep health and its importance. So, you know, what are what are your thoughts on that other big heavy topic? <laughs> yeah, I thought that a lot of times uh, the the way that this came about in my practice is that we have. Uh, a private Facebook support page for the families that we see and um, the providers that we collaborate with. They're all together on that page. They have to uh, Facebook friend me. They uh, sign papers that uh, state that they agree that they are going into this knowing that they would be sharing experiences or questions and that with other families or providers. Um, but it's a secret page uh, that that really no one can find other than people associated with my practice. But um, on that page, I'll treat a lot of families and and will correct the issues with 
with feeding, but then I see a lot of parents that'll say, well, now Johnny is snoring, you know, and, and is that normal? And I would have to say for the families that are listening to this, that snoring is not normal, whether you are an adult or a child. Snoring is not cute, it's dangerous, and it's an indication of turbulent airflow and obstructed airway. And that's one of the initial um, kind of steps towards sleep disorder breathing to the point where we get into upper airway resistance syndrome and then we get into apneas and hypopneas that um, if, you know, persistent, they can lead to a lot of damage. And um, I truly do believe that there's a strong correlation between tethered tissues and sleep disorder breathing and instances of SIDS. I just don't think it's researched enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of early on. And then when we get into the adolescent uh, ages, uh, and, and, you know, Dr. Baxter had touched upon this in his uh, podcast with you, is that we get into issues of probably misdiagnosed ADHD out there. And there's so many kids on these ADHD medications that their physician never really talked to the family about, well, how does your child sleep? Are they getting up frequently to go to the bathroom at night? Are they still bedwetting, even though they're potty trained? Um, Are they clenching and grinding their teeth? Do you ever notice, do they stop breathing at night? Are they mouth breathers? Um, You know, are are their lips chronically dry? How's their breath? Are there dental decay issues that are happening? You know, all these are correlated to dry mouth and, and mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how, how do they actually behave in school? Are they just chronically tired? Are they having dark circles under their eyes? You know, it's not normal for a child to be exhausted during the day and have to just take a, a nap on the floor. Um, you know, my, my son Gabe, Uh, My middle son, I'm passionate about this because he has uh, sleep apnea Mm -hmm. and he's a snore, chronically congested. His adenoids were huge. We had to remove them. They were like 98% blocking his airway and so nothing would drain for him. So we couldn't do any sort of Beckman therapy or myofunctional therapy until we got those out because he couldn't breathe through his nose. And the tenant of doing that therapy is lip sealed, breathing through the nose and tongue to the palate. So that was one step that we had to take. But then also part of his issue with his tongue tie was that his tongue obviously was not getting up to the roof of his mouth during those early formative months too. And so he has crowding of his deciduous baby teeth. And so now in my practice, I have to evolve myself to talking to families about sleep health and and sleep hygiene. And part of sleep hygiene too is <clears throat> what are we doing as adults as uh, and also with our kids before we go to bed? So are we looking at tablets and watching TV screens and all that an hour before bedtime? We shouldn't be because the blue the blue wavelength of light coming from those devices mimics uh, the sunlight. And so it wakes up our brain and makes us think that it's daytime. So then we're not ready. Those those hormones that get us ready for sleep are not going to be there. And then are we going to bed at the same time or are we night owls that just keep staying awake? Um, 
you know, and, and also foods. Are we eating foods that are going to be more allergenic and causing issues uh, with congestion? So a lot of things to be looked at there. Um, but with, with my son, now we're going to have to get into oral appliance therapy in conjunction with the myofunctional therapy. And I would highly recommend that as a parent, you don't get suckered into a dentist or, or you know, physician, whatever you, that are trying to sell these oral appliances without doing the myofunctional therapy with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so easy to get caught into that. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you bring that up. My own daughter, who is just turned four in August, is in an ALF. And I wear a DNA at night myself right now. Um, but we are with a very airway-centric dentist in North Bethesda, Maryland. And um, and I they refer to me and I refer to them. And they are of the mindset that pre- and post-op therapy needs to happen for tongue-tie releases and myofunctional therapy needs to go hand-in-hand -hand with these dental appliances. And for every case, it's different. There is no one cookbook timeline for every patient because sometimes we go, well, no, we can't do myofunctional therapy until we ex start expanding that palate a little bit. So we'll start to do some, you know, uh, some expansion with one of the appliances. And then a couple months in, we might start myofunctional therapy and we make sure they graduate before that appliance is removed. So they've habituated their new oral rest postures and their correct swallow, um, you know, and, or on the flip side, sometimes we go, well, we can start myofunctional therapy and, you know, the appliance can come when it comes because there's a, there's enough room to get the tongue up there right now, but there's other reasons or we need to do some expan expansion still, you know, from a dental appliance standpoint or correct a bite or, you know, whatever the end goal may be. I'm not the dentist over here, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so interesting to me how, you know, yes, I think that absolutely they go hand in hand. And I like that you said, you know, do your research, but also know what your what questions to ask, you know, ask about that pre and post op therapy for tongue tie releases, ask about myofunctional therapy, and if they recommend that with their appliances, um, and, and making sure that you're going to somebody who's qualified to provide those services as well, I think is absolutely uh, huge, um, a huge factor in all of this. I think I have poor sleep hygiene because I'm constantly on the support pages on Facebook at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> answering questions. Right there with you. I'm <laughs> trying to change yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I sent you an article. It's by uh, Twang and it's uh, from 2017 from the Journal of, of Formosan Medical Association. And it's called a passive myofunctional therapy applied on children with obstructive sleep apnea, a six-month follow-up. And I, I wanted to mention this study because you're talking about appliances. Mm -hmm. And in that study, uh, they're talking about having a passive way of doing myofunctional therapy and helping with reducing the, the effects of uh, sleep apnea on the uh, apnea hypopnea index uh, as one measure. And... Um, one of the drawbacks to that study, and, and this is another thing that you know pro providers will read and then they think, well, we can just use an appliance on everything and then everything works out fine. But the way this appliance was designed is it had um, uh, basically an acrylic uh, piece that would fit into the palate. And there was a little ball that was associated right where we would, we would put the tongue to the spot. Mm -hmm. And that ball can, you know, it, it rotates, it moves. And so the idea is to 
have the tongue getting up to that and, and fiddling with that ball and then kind of by second nature getting the tongue up to the palate. But the problem with the design of the study is that one, one of the authors is actually the manufacturer, the developer of this appliance. So there's an inherent bias that's uh, ingrained in the study. But then the other thing too, is that uh, the appliance is designed as a mandibular advancement appliance. And we use those on a regular basis as dentists to treat patients with mild to moderate sleep apnea. And that shows a reduction in HI just by itself. But to show then that we're doing passive myofunctional therapy, what they really need is an appliance that has the ball, uh, but does not move the jaw forward in an appliance that has the ball and moves the jaw forward. And then actually uh, compare that to an appliance that has no ball whatsoever and either moves the jaw forward or doesn't. And really yeah. look at all of those variables. Yeah, I'd be curious because I've had children who have had ALF appliances put in and there's a provider um, in another part of Maryland who has put a ball on that appliance with just the hope that that would train the tongue to go up to the spot. And I found for this particular child, and this was only one case, but it didn't work. Um, so I asked, I very kindly asked the dentist to remove it and he did. Um, and so it was, you know, in my mind, I was like, I just felt there was also, there's a difference between the tongue physically touching that spot and creating new you know, neuromuscular movements, patterns, and memories, and, you know, that sensory input that I think there's something to be said about that as well. And if the ball does that somehow for, you know, if the tongue can't physically touch it because it's touching the ball, but the ball then touches the palate. I just, I want, I would love for someone to look at that. So if anybody's listening who likes to do research <laughs> and you want to do something with this study, I'd be so curious to, to know, you know, what, what that, that feedback, feedback looks like for, you know, the tongue to the palate or, or a ball in between. I want to know what is the risk of that creating a tongue thrust potentially? Interesting. Yes. Because if they're rolling back and forth, that could absolutely either create it or likely in a lot of these cases, the tongue thrust may already be there. Um, and so it might just be moving it from lower in the mouth, higher in the mouth, and it's still thrusting forward. So that's, yeah. that would be my other concern. Yeah. yeah. But thank you for bringing that up. We'll make sure that that study is in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, one last thing I would say is just for, uh, you know, recommendation uh, for colleagues. I'll, I'll have colleagues that'll ask me about our model. And um, one of the really important things that we do is uh, two things, I'd say. One is that we always call our patients ahead of time. Uh, and this is with all of our patients. We call them ahead of time when they're a new patient to our practice to welcome them to the practice and um, introduce ourselves and ask them if they have any questions or concerns before they see us. And that's a good way, you know, people are so nervous about seeing a provider a lot of times, and it's a good way to just break the ice and give them, empower them and give them the opportunity to actually ask questions providers these days are so busy it's all about getting getting butts in and out of the chair and it's a you know a money-making model mm -hmm. and um, you know when we're when we're treating patients who are tongue-tied there is a lot of time that is spent to handhold these patients and educate them mm -hmm. and um, it's ours and so we do that phone call we do a post-op phone call and um in, in our office on the uh, infant day, we have parents from the week before 
uh, at their one-week post-op and at their four-week post-op uh, come in at the same time. We, we actually uh, double book them and schedule them to come in for their post-ops at the same time because I want the four-week um, post-op family where things are typically improved to sit face-to-face -face with the one-week family who they're stressed because they just came out of an acute healing phase and things are not always perfect at that time to yeah. be able to talk to each other and, and see, hey, things will get better. And that's just another way of just adding peace of mind uh, to that family and really kind of trying to provide them a Disney experience. And that Disney experience is something where when we go to Disney World, we, we remember that experience because it was something different. And yeah. people want something that's different mm -hmm. in a good way. Yeah, and I love, I love that you call it a Disney experience because I think Disney and I smile. It's a for me, it's a good experience. But you're right; it's they've kind of created their own. Um, it, it's a, it's an experience, I guess, is the best way to say it, and and you, it's memorable, but in a good way. And so I think I love that what you're doing, and I think you make a really good point that there is so many hours that go into educating and hand-holding and making sure that our families are prepared and that they're receiving the care afterwards, people don't realize how much time and energy we spend working with each individual family. Um, and that that's, you know, everybody from each provider that might be involved in the puzzle. So, you know, thank you for sharing that too, because um, that's not discussed enough. That's not something that people share, uh, you know, very openly. And we don't often get paid for that time. <laughs> so, you know, it's just something we do out of the goodness of our own heart, because these patients need us and we want to make sure they have the best experience that Disney experience you speak about. So yes, absolutely. Um, we do it because we're passionate about this. That's why. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on. I, I don't want to take up any of your more of your time today. I appreciate all of this information and um, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Hallie. It's a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Have a great day. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Myo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.